Lord, that is our confession. You have been so good to us. And yes, there have been moments in our life where we've wondered where you've been. But yet we recognize, even in those places where we have felt that you were not with us, your word declares you never abandoned us. And Lord, you walked us through those dark times, those difficult moments, sustaining and encouraging and carrying us along. And I pray today as we look at your word and we evaluate and examine our own lives, I ask, Father, that out of this experience today, we will draw close to you. We will hear your voice. You will speak to us collectively, but you will also speak to each and every heart. So help us, Lord, to hear your voice. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. A number of years ago, I read a story of a woman who, uh, well, she was a resident at an extended care facility. And this lady passed away, and of course, they responded in the way that they normally do. They made a phone call, in this case, to the Fraser Health Authority, who sent a driver to pick up the deceased woman. The driver dutifully transported an elderly woman to the hospital morgue. Unfortunately, the driver failed to check the, race, the, the wristband for identification, and he carried off the wrong woman. The 87-year-old resident he wheeled away was simply asleep. Even after the driver left her on a gurney in the hospital corridor, she was still sleeping. Meanwhile, an employee at the extended care facility noticed that the deceased resident was still there. But her roommate was missing. So they kind of put two and two together, made a quick phone call to the hospital, and promptly returned the woman to the facility in an ambulance. Now, I, you go, really? This is, this is so embarrassing to have an experience. But can you imagine sleeping through that, you know? Sleeping and people thought, she's gone. Now, I think being mistaken for dead is a very terrifying experience. But think about this. You know, in the spiritual realm, it may be even worse than that to be thought to be spiritually alive and yet to be dead. And as we look at the church we're going to examine today, the church at a city called Sardis, those are the words that Jesus said. As a matter of fact, these people thought they were, you know, that they were, you know, really spiritually alive, and Jesus says, you're dead. That's not a good scenario, is it? So Paul, writing to the Corinthian church, and we just discussed it here when we were receiving communion. This was a church with all kinds of problems. How many realize that? If you've read the New Testament, there's two letters written to this church. And actually, you know, I'm kind of, in one way, somewhat happy that Paul had to address problems in the church because it helps us as leaders to recognize There'll always be problems in the church and there'll always be problem situations. And we get an idea of how to handle some of those things. But here in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, he says something very profound. He says, examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. So now we have a responsibility to examine our lives to see, do I really, am I really a follower of Jesus? Or am I just saying I'm a follower of Jesus? He says, test yourself. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you unless, of course, you fail the test? So, you know, today we're going to do a little soul searching, all right? You already see that. We're already moving in a direction because of this letter. And I believe that if we listen carefully today, we can actually 
deal with some things in our lives that are really keeping us from experiencing true Christian freedom. And I, and I believe that we all want to experience that kind of freedom in our lives. Now, uh, a number of years ago, some of us traveled to Turkey, where these seven churches are actually located. And many of them are just ruins today. And some of these cities now have modern cities nearby. But Sardis is an interesting community because the, the city was built on, on the top of an Acropolis, a hillside, about 1,400 feet above the plain. And it had, you know, the sides, sides of the hill rose steep. And so it was like cliffs. And so it was almost an impregnable fortress. And so in the ancient world, it's always good to have, you know, a city to live in that's easy to defend. And this city was easily defended. There was a small landmass from the south, which usually was heavily watched, and it was easily defended. However, twice in its history, it fell. There was a breach in her defense because a small detachment of soldiers literally scaled the cliffs to open the gates for their army. William Ramsey, an archaeologist, says this, An attack made by this path could succeed only if the assailants climbed up entirely unobserved. And they could not escape observation unless they made the attempt by night. Hence, even though this was unrecorded, a night attack must have been the way in which Cyrus, the Persian king, entered Sardis. He came upon the city like a thief in the night. You know, it's interesting, that expression is used in the book of Thessalonians when Jesus says, I'm coming back. I will come like a thief in the night. How many know when a thief comes in the night, you're not ready for it? A couple of weeks ago, we had our garage broken into. We were sleeping through the whole thing. I didn't even know what's happened. The next morning, Patty went out to leave and immediately came running back in because she recognized you know, somebody had broken into our garage and had taken a few things you know, later that we discovered what they had taken. But fortunately for us, the, the door between the garage and the house was bolted, so we were fine. But you know, if I didn't know the thief was coming at that time, we would have been able to apprehend him. We would have been able to capture this person, right? Or at least phone the police in time for them to capture this person. <laughs> Patty, Patty would take care of it herself. Uh, in the ancient Greek world, there was a saying that to capture Sardis was to achieve the impossible. But then there was also another proverb that went something like this. It was a proverb of carelessness, of being overconfident, which led to a fall. Because Sardis had fallen a couple of times. Now, how many realize that when Jesus is writing to these churches, he actually incorporates something of their history in the words he's about to use, so that it's actually a very specific word to a specific community, and the people in the church would understand based on their past experience. And I'm convinced that what God does in our lives is he speaks to us be, you know, in a way that you and I will get it. He'll speak in a way that we'll understand what he wants to say in our lives. Now, this city at this point in time was actually in a state of decline. It was, a, it was legendary for its wealth. As a matter of fact, we've all heard the expression, the Midas touch, remember that? King Midas actually came from this community. So that's part of the sense of wealth that it had. But by the time Paul wrote this letter, as I've already said, it was a state of decline in the city, and the Roman Empire was actually sending money to help this community. So they were 
you know, had a great reputation, but the reality was they were on their way down. Now, while most Asian cities promoted the idea of physical healing in their religious views, Sardis magnified this idea even to the point that one of the goddesses that they were worshiping, Cybele, had the power in their mind to restore life to the dead. So uh, it's interesting that Jesus now is going to use this background to speak into their lives. And so what I want us to do is turn there to uh, Revelation chapter 3. And we're just going to look at the first eight verses of this book. Because this is the part that he speaks to the city of Sardis. It says, To the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Now, I don't know about you, but here's how I think. You know, it's one thing for people to say nice things about me, but God's looking at me and going, that ain't the real story. Or to have people say, you're an idiot, and God's saying, no, he's actually something far better than that. You have to decide, who do you want to commend you, people or God? And so here this church is now being not commended, but actually confronted by Christ himself. He says here, uh, wake up, strengthen what remains and, and is about to die, for I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard, obey it and repent. And if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my Father and his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, this church was actually dealing with a problem. And here's what I've identified the problem as. They were living in a state of self-deception. Now, how many know that self-deception is a very dangerous place to be? How many realize that? Because if you think that you're physically well and your body isn't, you know, you could be in a lot of trouble. How many say that's true? And so you'd almost need someone to evaluate your physical condition, an objective evaluation to say, maybe you're not as healthy as you think you are. Or here's the other thing. Spiritually, we could think everything's great in my life. And now we, you know, we're living in a state of self-deception. And I've met a lot of people like that. I thought they were doing great. And I'm going, no, you can't be doing so great. Look, this is what's going on in your life. You're not in a good state. You almost need an objective person to evaluate you. Almost beside yourself. How many recognize that you and I are a little bit blind to our faults? Anybody notice that? And other people see it more clearly. We can see what's wrong with other people. They don't see it as clearly because they're living within themselves. And then a number, uh, I think months ago, I shared this idea that, you know, sometimes we can't even see our faults and nobody else sees them. But God sees them. And psychologists talk about that in, in, a, in a description of what they call the Jahari window where we're blind to that. And so then the psalmist has this prayer, Lord, search me and see if there be any wicked way in me. How many think that's kind of a scary prayer? Because, you know, God may answer that prayer. And what will happen is during the week, you'll begin to see things about yourself you, you just can't believe is there. Now, anybody ever had that experience where a trial has come into your life, a difficulty, and you behaved in a very poor manner? Has anybody had that experience? I mean, I have my hand up. You know, that can happen, right? 
So I'm trying to help us here today to move past the state of self-deception. As a matter of fact, if, you, if you're in a state of self-deception, you can't get any better. Is that true? I mean, if let's say you're battling alcohol. You know, the first thing you have to do is acknowledge you have a problem with it. If you go to Alcoholics Anonymous, I know this, my father was an alcoholic. Step one in AA is simply this. You have to acknowledge that you're an alcoholic. That's the first step. You have to acknowledge you have a problem. Nobody can be helped who does not acknowledge they have an issue. And that's the same way in life. You know, our culture today is trying to do away with this whole idea that we have problems. Matter of fact, everybody's trying to tell everybody we're all okay. It doesn't matter what we do. It doesn't matter how messed up we are. We're all telling people, that's okay. You just do what you want to do. It's great. Be yourself. The only problem is some of these behaviors are unhealthy in our lives. And they're actually destructive to ourselves. And they have a negative impact on other people. So we're not doing people a favor by telling them everything's okay when it's not okay. And so the loving person cares enough for a person to say, listen, you cannot continue in this self-destructive behavior because it's destroying you. And I care enough about you to say something and try to tell you, you need to begin to identify that as an issue and you need to address it. As a matter of fact, that's how we become a Christian. First thing we have to acknowledge is that we're a sinner. That's really hard to do. It's very humbling to say, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a sinner in need of a savior. And a lot of people who are even moral people have a hard time admitting that they need a savior. And the Paul says, the good news is for sinners. And then he says, of which I am the chief. I'm a pattern. I was a terrible person. You know, even though I was, you know, a religious person, I was actually killing people because, you know, I really believed in my mind I was doing God a service. And there are people living in our world today that are killing people thinking they're doing God a service. But the reality is they're deceived. And so they're blind to the truth. So today what I'm trying to do is help us come to the knowledge of the truth. When you and I come to a realization that we have an issue, then that's the first step towards moving into a change in our lives. And I think a lot of times, even as Christians, the reason why we're not growing spiritually is because we cannot identify what's wrong in our lives. We don't see it. We think we're okay. And the reality is we're not dealing with something in our life that's actually impeding our spiritual progress. So today I'm going to focus in on how to find real freedom. How many here, you would like to experience greater freedom in your life? Anybody want greater freedom? I'm going to give you three keys today to help you come to a place of greater freedom in your life. Jesus said it this way in John chapter 8 verse 31. He said to the Jews who had believed in him, he said, if you hold to my teachings, you are really my disciples. Now that idea of holding to his teachings, what does that mean? It means not just that we're hanging on to it in a mental ascent. It means that we're actually practicing what Jesus is telling us. And so my challenge today is we're going to move beyond understanding something to application of it. And that's when real freedom comes into our lives. Jesus said, then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Isn't that amazing? When you start doing what the Bible says, you will start experiencing what the Bible promises. And a lot of people, you know, will walk around and say, you know, pastor, this this doesn't work. And all they're telling me is they're not doing what it says. Because the moment they start doing it, they start experiencing it. And so when people say that to me, I'm going, well, they're not doing it. Because they're not experiencing it. The moment I do it, I experience it. Okay. 
So let's take a look at these keys. The first key I want to point out is the truth about our condition. I've already raised that as an idea, right? I've already expressed it. I've already said, hey, we've got to know where we're at before we can move forward. So we need something that's objective so that we can evaluate. What I mean by objective is something outside of ourselves. Because, you know, you and I are quite subjective. We evaluate from within ourselves. And so we see ourselves very subjectively. But that's not going to help us. We need something outside of ourselves to evaluate us. And Pastor Mark did a really nice job a few weeks ago from the book of James, and he quoted these verses, and I want to just run them through us really quickly because it talks about freedom in these verses. He says, Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourself. Remember I'm talking about today? Self-deception. How do I overcome a state of self-deception? Well, he says, Don't just listen to what the word of God says. Do what it says. Then he goes on, anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in the mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. So now the question is, what good did the mirror do? And the answer is nothing because the moment he left, he forgot, right? And that's what James is equating it to. He says, the Bible is a mirror. When you and I come into reading the scriptures, we read the Bible, it's not going to do us any good by just reading it. What we need to do is take it and take what it says and put it into practice. That's when life begins to change for us. Now, I'm going to argue here and try to be nice about it and say this, that every day we should be reading the Bible. I'll come back to that thought. And we should be taking something from it and we should be putting it into practice. And if we start to do that, I'm going to tell you, your life's going to become transformed. You're going, to, you're going to be on the fast track to great freedom in your life. It says, but the man who looks intently into the perfect law, that does what? It gives freedom. And continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard, but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. I think most people would like to be blessed. And the word blessed means to be happy. How many here, I want to be happy? Raise your hand. I I got my hand up. I want to be happy. Anybody want to be happy? Who wants to be sad? Raise your hands. Not too many takers on sad. But we all want to be happy. That word blessed means be happy. God says, hey, I want to make you happy. But, you know, we're not happy by just doing our thing. How many have discovered that? I've done my thing, but it hasn't necessarily made me happy. I'm doing more of my thing, but it's not making me even more happy. A lot of times what I discover is the thing I'm doing is making me miserable. So we have to change what we're doing. And so God says, this is what you need to know. Now we notice here that Christ is the one who's holding the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Wow, did I get to beef? That was fast. Okay, skipped. We notice that Christ is holding the seven spirits of God. Now I want to just point out something. You know, the book of Revelation uses numbers and figures to describe something. This is not that there's seven spirits. Okay, don't go down that literal path because you're going to totally mess it up. What this really means is it's the sevenfold, is really the the work of the spirit. See, the word seven in the Bible is a number that means perfect or complete. It's the perfect work of God. It's the work of God's spirit. Okay, so don't try to interpret that there are seven spirits. There's only one spirit. It's just a, it's a way of talking, all right? It's an analogy. It's, a, it's, a, it's an expression. 
So don't read into that. What we find here, it's the Spirit of God that brings life. It's the Spirit of God that brings change in our lives. We can't change apart from God's Spirit at work in our lives. You know, there's an Old Testament book and there's a kind of a story. Ezekiel's a prophet. He's in... He's walking along and he's in a valley and he comes to a place where there's, you know, there's all these dead bones. It must have been a battle there. Nobody buried the bodies or something. He's walking. There. It's a vision. So I don't think it, he literally saw physically. He's seeing, seeing a vision of after a battle. And all of these bones are laying there. And then all of a sudden God says, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do something with these bones. And God starts to orchestrate these bones coming back together again, you know. And there's a crazy song, you know, the right bone goes to this bone. You know, how many have ever heard that song? Really crazy song. Probably taken from this vision Ezekiel's got. He's getting all these bones back together. And then all of a sudden, flesh comes on these bones. So in other words, they're, they're beginning to see uh, a, tra- a change from death to life. That's really what that story is about. It's about going from death to life. Isn't that beautiful? And he's showing that God is the one who can take our broken places, the places where we have destroyed and we've been robbed and we've, we've experienced separation from God and from other people, and how we can bring this back together again. And all of a sudden there's a body there and God says, can these dead bones live? That's the question. And Ezekiel goes, God, you know. And God goes, yeah, watch what I do. And all of a sudden... These guys are, are coming back to, you know, being recreated. And then it says, he says, now Ezekiel prophesy to these bones. And that just means speak to them, you know. And that's what I'm doing today. I'm speaking to you. And what happens is, as he was prophesying, you know what? The breath of God came. The Spirit of God came. And when God's word and the Spirit of God comes, pow, you have life. And all of a sudden, they, these guys came alive. God brought this, this valley of dry bones back to life. And what God wants to do in our lives is bring us to life. That's God's goal. He wants to bring energy and dynamic and excitement into our lives. Now, it says here, when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. And then it says, the knowledge of Christ regarding their deeds is that their works here in, in Sardis were without value. Remember, he's correcting them now. He says, I know you're dead. You have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. You're dead. That's a terrible pronouncement from, from Christ, from God. Terrible pronouncement. Uh, you know, they were disconnected. To be spiritually dead means that we're separated from God. As a matter of fact, Paul says that in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, as for you, he's talking to the church there at Ephesus. As for you, you were past tense. Something happened to them. You were, it says, dead in your transgressions and sins, but in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ways of society, the ways that have abandoned God and the ruler of the kingdom of the air. That's another name for Satan. And the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. This is a characteristic of people who don't know God. They live in rebellion against God. They live in defiance to God. They don't even realize it. Their whole life is, is not you know, oriented towards God. They're not living to obey God. They don't understand that what they're doing is actually alienating themselves from God and leaving them in bondage. They're not in freedom. But all of a sudden, Jesus Christ came so that people could have this beautiful experience of being raised from the dead, spiritually speaking, raised from the dead, and now experience life. 
You know, Paul writes to Timothy warning against those who were self-deceived, that were claiming to be spiritually alive and were dead. It says here in Timothy, having a form of godliness but denying its power have nothing to do with them. Wow. He's speaking pretty strongly here. There are people out there who are saying that they're, you know, spiritual. And sometimes the people that say they're the most spiritual are not even, not even spiritually alive. It's a false profession. Or as James argues in chapter 2, verse 17, in the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. So here's what we need to realize, that we can tell that we're a Christian. So how do I examine myself and know I'm a Christian? How can I tell I'm a Christian? I'm glad you asked that question, because this is what starts happening. The moment I ask Christ to come into my life, he changes my heart. He changes my nature. And all of a sudden, you know, the things I used to love to do, I'm losing an interest in some of those things, okay? And the things that I, hate, that I never had any interest in, you know, like coming to church or reading the Bible or praying, all of a sudden, I have a desire to know the word of God. I have a desire to please God. If you have a desire to please God, that's because God's given you a new nature. Isn't that amazing? See, I never had that before I was a Christian. I didn't have a desire to please God. I could have cared less. I had no interest in going to church. I'd rather miss church. It was kind of boring, to be honest. I'm being honest, you know. I had no interest in reading the Bible. Why would I want to spend time doing that? There were so many other interesting books. I'm just telling you what it was like. But when I gave my life to Christ, all of a sudden, you know, I'm devouring the Bible. All of a sudden, I want to please God. You know, I want to come to church. All of a sudden, God's spirit has been activated in my life. And I find that as I'm coming to church week in and week out, God is talking to me. I'm going, wow, something's happening. And I'm engaged with God. And it was exciting. I was alive. And I had a new meaning and a direction and a purpose in my life. That's how you know something's happening on the inside. God's spirit is at work. Well, let me move on here. Let me go to the second key. Second key is simply when we act on the truth and repent. So it's one thing to finally agree with God and go, this is my spiritual condition. This is where I'm really at. Then God says, this is where I want you to be at. Okay, God, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to change my mind. That's what repentance is. I'm, I've understood my condition and I'm in agreement with you. You're saying that I'm dead? Okay, I'm dead. But I don't want to be dead anymore. I want to be alive. I want to be united with you. I want to experience your life. I want to have this freedom you're, you're promising. The only way we can be spiritually free is through the, through the person of Christ. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. So Grant Osborne, a, a New Testament scholar, points out that there are five commands in this text here that we just read. And the first one he wants to speak to them. Remember, he's speaking to Christians here. He wants to address spiritual lethargy. You know, how many, you know, you can get complacent and apathetic. Like when you're sleeping and you need to get up, what do you normally do? You set an alarm, right? <clears throat> Usually I wake up before my alarm goes off, but this morning I didn't. And I'll t- I think God helped me to just make this an illustration. But when that thing went off this morning, I almost jumped out of bed. I didn't know. I was so disoriented. I didn't know where I was, what day it was, what time it was. You know, I was like, boom. Like, I mean, talk about wide awake. You know, I even had a little adrenaline in my system. That thing shook me up because I normally am awake before my alarm goes off. But at 5 a.m., sometimes I'm not. So that, that's why I said it, you know, just in case. Wow, did I ever, you know, come alive? 
Revelation starts up, wake up. So when you're telling people to wake up, why are you telling them to do that? Yeah, that's the obvious answer. They're sleeping, you know. And then he says, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I've not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. So, you know, I, gotta, you know, I, I think of another incident in the life of Jesus. Remember this? He's telling his disciples, we're in an upper room, he says, I'm about to die. It's the Last Supper. Jesus is going and he's heading to the garden to pray. He, he knows he's going to face the greatest moment of difficulty in his entire life. This is an agonizing moment. As a matter of fact, we talk about the agony in Gethsemane. It's the name of the garden. And Gethsemane means to be, it's, it means the olive press. And some of us have been to Israel. When they press olives to get olive oil, let me tell you something. They squeeze those guys. They crush them. And Jesus is about to be crushed with despair. And he's now praying. So just before he gets there, he takes his 12 disciples. He's told them, I'm about to die. Now, you have to know one thing. Jesus doesn't just say idle things and then it doesn't happen. These guys have followed him for three and a half years. Everything Jesus says has happened. So they're, they're a little bit bummed. How many know if you've, if you've totally believed in somebody and he, they're following him and they've given up everything to follow him and now he says, oh, by the way, I'm the Messiah, but I'm a Messiah that's going to suffer and die. And they go, does not compute. That did not filter through their minds because all of their lives they thought the Messiah would be a king who would overcome the Romans and they would be in political power. So Jesus is saying, I'm not that kind of a king. I'm going I'm I'm to conquer through suffering and dying. These guys are bummed out, okay? So they're, they're dis- how many know when you're bummed out and you're emotionally down, it affects your, your physical energy levels? Anybody have this experience? I mean, you're, you're, you're lethargic. And so they're tired out and they're going into the garden and Jesus says, what does he say to them? Pray with me. But he says something more than that. This is what I'm getting at today. He says, watch and pray. In other words, be alert. And this is what Jesus wants the church to be. Alert. You know, pay attention. There are things happening in our world. Be vigilant. Be, be attentive to what's happening in our world. Don't, don't just, you know, put your head in the sand like an ostrich. You know, just bury yourself and go, I don't care. I don't want to know anything. Please don't tell me any bad news, you know. You know. No, he says, be watchful and be praying. Don't let it overtake you. Don't let it overcome you. Don't let it create anxiety within you. When you see these things, start praying, praying, praying. So Jesus says, please watch and pray. This is about to happen. This is a great temptation for me, but it's also going to be a great temptation for you. But what did the disciples do in the Garden of Gethsemane? They fell asleep. They were so lethargic that they fell asleep. So Jesus is praying, he's sweating drops of blood. I mean, it's an agonizing moment. He goes over and he sees all of them sleeping. He walks over and he goes, hey, come on, you guys, wake up, pray with me. Pray for yourselves. This is a great moment of testing about to come upon you. And the only way you're going to succeed is if you're awake. What's he do? Jesus goes back and pray. What do these guys do? Oh, yeah, they got into prayer now. 
No, they went right back to sleep. How many have ever had those moments where you're so tired? You're going, I want to get up. My body's telling me, my mind's telling me to get up, but my body's going, you're not going anywhere. And sleep overtakes you. And it overtook these guys and they were sleeping again. And this happened three times. And finally, Jesus, the crowd is coming to arrest him now. There's some soldiers, it's a mob. You know, the disciple that's going to betray him is there. And so what happens then? Jesus, you know, He's ready for it. So Jesus now, in the midst of the greatest trial in his life, you get the picture, Jesus is in full control of himself. Isn't he? Absolutely. Now, where are the disciples now? In the greatest trial of their life, what are they doing? They're running. They're denying they've ever known Jesus. They're just a mess. They messed up. How many here can say, you know, there's been tests in my life, and you know what, when I look back, I have to give myself an F. My hand's up. Anybody fail? Anybody here, you know, you had temptation and you failed? Just raise your hand. Be honest. It's good. It's honesty. Good confession for your soul. Okay. Why did we fail? That's a great question. Because we weren't watching and praying. We weren't ready. See, when life is good, we just think it's always going to be this way. And when the tests come, we're not ready for it. That's why we're told to watch and pray. We have to be alert. You know, how many have ever had a moment in your life where you were watching and praying and you were alert and a test came and you went, wow, I can't believe this. I'm actually, you know, I, I, can't, I can't believe how I'm responding. This is not how I normally respond. I've actually got peace. You know, I actually was full of joy. I actually, when somebody said something nasty, I didn't get upset. I just couldn't believe it. I'm going, what's wrong with me? I'm behaving in a way that's not normally the way I behave. Anybody have those experiences? That means you're really passing the test. You're going, this is not how I normally do it. Because I've been in a place with God so that when it finally happened, I'm responding like Christ would. The Spirit of God is winning the battle inside of me. How many here want to pass the test and not flunk the test? Anybody want to be passing the test? That's how you live in freedom. So Jesus is teaching his disciples that. Now, I've got to ask the question today. How's your prayer life? Gotten quiet now. Or how's your devotional life? Do you guys read the Bible? Yeah, good. Every day? That's good. Matter of fact, I had an experience this week. Let me share my experience. I'm reading the Bible, get up, you know, and I do read the Bible in the morning. And what I do is I look for a theme. I read three or four chapters and I'm looking for what God wants to say to me. This is not for sermon preparation. I don't, I rarely use this material for you, on you guys. This is for my soul. And I, and I was reading, and I just felt like I was reading a psalm, and I was reading, you know, I think it was in Exodus. And I just felt this theme was emerging, and I wrote it in my journal. And I came to work, and we immediately went into crisis mode here. And I went, oh, that's why you're telling me this. And you know what? I had a tool in my tool belt, so when I got here, this tool helped me go through the morning. And I thought to myself, you know, it'd be interesting. If I hadn't read those verses, I'm convinced I wouldn't have responded the way I did. It was almost like God had given me a prep, a heads up. I didn't know that I was walking this up. How many, a lot of times, some of the trials that you've gone through, were you ready for them? Did you get a heads up? Usually you don't. But I'm going to tell you right now, if you have a d- daily devotional time with God, you'll have a heads up sometimes. God will tell you what's going down before you even get there. He'll show you something and you'll be thinking about it and you'll walk into a situation and go, I know exactly what to do. I had the heads up. I was listening to God. I was watching and praying. Are you, you see how I'm connecting it in life? 
I think some of us, we don't realize, we just think we're doing it because it's a religious thing to do. No, it's more than that. Let me move on. They were commanded to strengthen uh, what had remained, was about to die. Now, we're living in an age of exhaustion. How many go, that's true, Pastor? How many here, you feel like you're a little rug rat? You're just, you feel like you're a little hamster on the, the merry-go-round wheel. You're just moving 100 miles an hour, and you just feel like life is going so fast. You're so busy. It's just like overwhelming. I've got my day timer out. Excuse me, let me check to see if I even have time available. Anybody, anybody relate to what I'm talking about? Is it like we're living in an exhausted state for the most part as a culture? Well, Darley and Batson, they did a study in Princeton. You can actually type this in in Google search this afternoon. It works. Darley, D-A-R-L-E-Y, Batson, B-A-T-S-O-N. And they did an experiment. And here's their experiment. They, did, they were in Princeton in 1973. Princeton has a seminary. So they're teaching seminary students. And they wanted to do a sociological study. And here's what they did. They changed the variables. And one of the variables was, based on the task assigned, would that have an impact on how you would respond in a crisis? Or given the intensity of what was about to happen, like the state of being in a hurry, how does hurriedness, how does busyness affect our ability to help other people? So what they did is they hired an actor. He went out and pretended he was like coughing and falling down. It was like he was in a crisis situation, okay? He was set up in between one building on the campus and another building on the campus. And the professors told the students, we want you to go across the campus and do something. And they even gave, you're going to love this, they even gave them the assignment, we want you to speak on the Good Samaritan. How many know the story of the Good Samaritan? That's the guy that helps somebody out when nobody else does, right? We want you to run across the campus and teach on the Good Samaritan, okay? And some of them, they gave a lot of time to. And when they came up to the guy that was having the problem, 63% of them stopped and helped, or almost, yeah, it was 63% helped them. Then, as they said, the situation was more intense. They said, you're already late for this assignment. If you don't get this done, you're not going to get this grade. So they, they put more intense pressure on the seminarians to go over there and speak on this. It says when they had about a medium hurried level, about 45% stopped. But when they made it extremely intense and said, if you don't get over there, you're not going to pass this course, you're not going to graduate, or some crazy thing, they tried to create a high degree of anxiety inside of them to hurry over there and do that. Only 10% stopped to help the guy. Okay? How many think that's interesting? What they discovered was, it didn't matter what they told them they had to do, even when they made them speak on the Good Samaritan. That didn't affect them. And so here's what they, they, they kind of walked away with. They said this, maybe ethics becomes a luxury as the speed of our daily lives increase. In other words, we become less ethical when we get busier. Very interesting study. Now, why am I saying all of this? I believe what Satan is doing in our world today is he's trying to speed us up. If you read Daniel, it says everything speeds up. So we're going at a really high tempo. And you know what happens? At the higher the tempo you go, the less time you have to think and react to things. Isn't that true? How many of us, that's true? Less time to think. And so I'm going to give you a homework assignment. You didn't know that today. Here's your homework assignment. You're going to write this down. This is going to help you. How many here want to experience freedom? 
How many here want to change and grow? Here's the homework assignment. It's a real simple one. I want you to think about your life right now, and I want you to put down what you're doing. And I want you to say to yourself, is there space in my life if something came up that I could handle it? Or am I moving so fast if something came along, I couldn't handle it? My life is moving that fast. I don't have time. I don't have time. Now, think about what the parable of Jesus is teaching here. He says it this way in Mark chapter 4, verse 18. He says, still others, like seeds sown among thorns, hear the word. What's going to happen? But the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desire for other things come in and choke the word, making it what? Unfruitful. In other words, it's nullifying it. It means that the word of God is not impacting our lives. And so even though we're hearing sermons on Sunday, our lives aren't changing because what's happening is we're not able to apply it because we're moving too quickly. And I want you to evaluate everything you're doing this week. Think about what you're doing and saying, okay, in the great scheme of things, when it comes to the eternal scheme of things, how is this, what I'm doing, really going to impact that? Now, I'm going to share another thought with you. Notice it says here, the deceitfulness of wealth. Do you know what happens? In our culture, we're bombarded with the message over and over again that we need a lot of things to live on, right? We're being told every day that the reason why we're dissatisfied with life is that we don't have something. And that we have these needs in our lives that we need to fulfill. And I'm, I'm going to argue against that position and say, one of the reasons why our lives are so busy is we have too many things. And what happens is the more things you have, the more you have to take care of these things. Isn't that true? And it's eating up more of our time. And so we become a slave to the things that are supposed to be serving us. Isn't that true? Sure it is. And so I want you to really look at your life. I'm going to argue that some, there's a freedom in simplicity. The less things I have, the more freedom I have. And one of the reasons why we're many times unsuccessful is that we've got too much going on in our lives that really don't matter. There's a lot of stuff in our lives that shouldn't be there. But we've cluttered our lives with all kinds of activities. And we need to reevaluate what we're doing. So that's your assignment this week. I want you to think about what you're doing and what you're not doing. Because I want to flip it to the other direction and say this. Jesus told a parable about giving talents and minus to people. Remember those? And he said, I gave five talents to this person. He said, I want you to go out and, you know, invest what I gave you. He tells the parable about going away and then there's going to be accountability. We are all accountable to God in this room for what God has given us. God has given you time. He's given you intelligence. He's given you energy. He's given you opportunity. And then God says to us, what did you do with it? And when we get before the king one day, you know, there's, there's three guys that come back. The guy that had five talents, he created five more. The guy that had two talents created two more. It's just based on the opportunity. But the one that had one talent, what did they do? They buried it. And what was Jesus' response to this person? Like he was real happy with that? No, he said, you wicked and lazy servant. Now that's an interesting statement. So I'm giving you two things. And they're not contradictory, but I'm trying to show you that you and I, number one, we get caught up with the wrong priorities and activities on the one side, and yet we're not doing what God's asking us to do on the other side. Is that scary? And so what what I'm getting at is you and I can think that we're doing great guns, but just remember something. 
You and I are not evaluating ourselves. We're not the ultimate evaluator. God is the ultimate evaluator because he gave you life to start with. How many realize that? God gave you life to begin with. He gave you the abilities and talents to begin with. So you've got to say to yourself, what is it that you want me to be doing, Jesus? And help me to be faithful to that. And it will help us live a far more happy life. All right? I'm going to close with the story. Satan wanted to deceive people on the planet. He's the great liar. He's the deceiver. So he, he went to all of his, this is a fictitious story, but it'll make a point. He went to all these demons and he said, okay, who can go to earth and deceive these people? One demon came to him and said, listen, I'll just tell them there's no heaven. That'll do it. And Satan said, no, I don't know about that. You know, there's, there's a sense inside of people that there's got to be more to life than what there is. And, you know, people know that there's, you know, he said, they're not going to believe you because there's a little bit of heaven in every human heart. And in the end, everyone knows that right and good must have the victory. So no, I'm not going to send you. That's not going to do it. So there was a more sinister demon that said, well, I have a better plan than that anyways. What are you going to do? I'll just tell them there's no hell. There's no hell to be, you know, shunned. Satan looked at them and said, no, they're not going to believe you. For in every human heart, there's a thing called conscience, an inner voice which testifies to the truth that will, that will not only good triumph in the end, but evil will be defeated. So I'm not sending you either. So a more sinister demon came to Satan. He says, you know what? I'll go. He said, what are you going to do? He said, well, this will really help destroy their souls. I'll tell them there's no hurry to do anything. There's no hurry to make any adjustments. There's no hurry to make any changes. You know, procrastination is a huge problem in our culture. Come on now. We mean well, but we don't do anything about it. I want to share with you the story of a family in our church. Most of us, we leave on Sunday morning, and in two hours, we forgot the sermon. What we say to ourselves is, that was a great sermon, but if you ask them, what was it about, they go, I don't know now. It's like, you know, went in, went out. But we had a family in our church, and this person said to me, you know, Pastor, you pastor the church, I'll pastor my family. He says, I want you to know what we do. When we go home after the sermon, I sit down with my family, and we talk about the sermon. And we work through it, and we say, okay, now, what does that mean to each of us? And they begin to apply it in their lives. And I've watched this family do this for a long time now. I'm talking over two decades. And you know what I noticed? All their kids are serving Christ, number one. Number two, he told me, I pastor my family. And a lot of us in this room, we don't take these things very, we don't take this you know, we do our job here, but you have a job there as a parent. It's your job to pastor your family. It's your job to pastor your own soul. It's your job to take what we're giving you, to sit down, write it out, think about it, and put it into practice. You know why we miss out on it? Because when we leave this place, we don't do anything with it. That's why I would say, if I was in your shoes, I'd be writing notes, number one. I would walk out of this room this morning and I would say, okay, what's the one thing that I think God wants me to do? And then get on it. Because if we don't start doing things that God's telling us to do, pretty soon we think we're doing what we're not doing. And we live in a state of self-deception. We think we're doing it. We think we have the knowledge of it. We've heard the information. But until we apply it, we'll never be free. Let's stand this morning.
So with every head bowed this morning, some of you, you need to say to yourself, what is God talking to me about? What is God talking to me about? For some of us in this room, we're far too busy. And we're far too busy. And there's some things that we should not. If we're far too busy, did God ask us to do all those things? What do you think? I don't think so. Yeah, we're too busy. So we need to take a a little pen and write down all the things we're doing and cross out what needs to go. And when you do that, you'll get a lot freer. Number one. Some of you, you're doing the wrong things. And God wants you to do something other than what you're doing. You need to sit down and say, God, what is it you want me to be doing? Because I don't want to be standing before Jesus and says, you wicked, lazy servant. That's not good. Because, you know, you and I can create our own standard, but we could be living in self-deception. We're going to be evaluated by God. He's going to make the final assessment on our lives. And here's the mirror to your soul right here. The mirror to your soul. But don't be like the man who just looked at himself in the mirror and he didn't do it. The mirror has no value if you don't apply it. You have to apply it. Why do I say this? Am I trying to be mean today? No. I want you to flourish. I want you to grow. I want you to be happy. I want you to advance. I want you to get excited for what's the good stuff. You know what? I want you to be so cranked about the things of God, you'll be like Amy. She's pumped, right? She's excited. That's good. I like that. That's what we should be excited about, the things of God. Because these things are eternal, and they'll make you happy. Amen? So every head bowed right now. How many here? I'm not going to embarrass you, but you just say, God spoke to me this morning. He's talking to me right now about something that needs to change in my life. You just raise your hand right now. God's talking to you right now about what needs to change in your life right now. Okay. Now, I want you to... You can't forget this. This is your homework. You've got to do something about that. You have to do something about that. And it will bring freedom in your life. I guarantee it. How can I guarantee it? I'm guaranteeing God's word. That's why it's going to happen. This is gonna, later on, we get into the book of Revelation. I'm going to keep going. You're going to be shocked at how I'm going to preach it. Because we think it's all predictive. And I'm going to show you how these prophets predicted in the Old Testament. When I show, the, show you how they did it, you're going to understand the book of Revelation like you never understood before. It's not like they had a vision of the future that they couldn't fully grasp. That's how it's been presented to us. The book of Revelation means that God wants to reveal it to us. And it seems to be a mystery to us. We're going to unpack that myth in the weeks to come. Does that sound good? And I'm going to show you some stuff that's going to blow you away. And why things turn out the way they do. Okay? We can change the future of our lives, listen to me very carefully, by obeying Christ. But if we don't repent, we will experience negative consequences. But if we change our mind and do what God's asking us to do, we're going to create a brand new future for our lives. How many go, I want a future? God's future for my life. That's what I want. That's what I want. So I'm going to pray for us today. Lord, 
you've been speaking into our hearts today very practically about what needs to change. And I pray, give us the grace, the strength, the wherewithal, the wisdom, the energy to do exactly what you're asking us to do. And I pray, Father, as a result of it, that freedom and hope and just happiness and joy will flood our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you as you leave.